Well, hey, everybody. Let's try this again. Welcome to the Neighborhood Church. It's so good to be God's people together. Amen? Here we are following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. And it is so good to be here with you all. I want to talk to you about a short story. And Lord willing, we'll talk about the second half of it next week. And it's back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, where the nation of Israel had just, and I mean just, been born. And we're talking about just learning to walk with God. And they're entering into a season that is an in-between season. And the reason I want to talk to you about this story is because I think we live most of our life feeling like we're in between. Here's what I mean. We are not who we were, but we're not yet who we want to be. Does anyone feel like this? Some of us have a default direction in which we look. Some of us look back because we're still obsessed or affected by the hurts or even the joys or the trials of the past, so we look kind of backward. Some of us are the optimists looking ahead to a better state, a better time, a better day. But I think if we're honest, very few of us, our natural response is to be present to the present moment. I think we don't like to be in an in-between season. We can recognize that we've come a certain amount of distance, but I think most of us are ready to move and to become something better or something that's newer. You with me? Years ago, I joined a Bible-based 12-step program called Celebrate Recovery. I've talked about it a time or two in my preaching and teaching. But when I joined this 12-step, it was in an in-between season in my life. I was not yet graduated from seminary. I was doing ministry part-time, and I was not yet full-time in ministry. I was engaged to Amy, but I was not yet married to Amy. I was feeling like I had matured and had kind of grown up, but I was not yet who I really wanted to be. I was in an in-between season of life, but it was also a season of growth and a season of formation. God was growing me. I just couldn't or wouldn't see it. So I remember one of the first questions and one of the first lessons in the first book of this Celebrate Recovery, and it was something like this. What are the if-thens that you're holding on to? Here's what it looked like for me. You ready for it? If only I was in full-time ministry, then I'll be more spiritual and disciplined. Oh, then I'm going to have it all figured out. If only, right? Well, if only I was married, then I'll shake those habits that are nagging me. Does marriage fix it all? Ooh, I see. Moving on. If only I was older, then I'll be respected and wiser and more mature. You get what I mean. What are the if-thens, or am I the only one? Oh, if, ooh, if, ooh, if, only if. Or maybe like me, you said a different version of the in-between season. I will blank when blank. 
this one might step on some toes. You know, I'll forgive when they deserve it. You know, I'll give when I got more money. You know, I'll pray, I'll serve, I'll read my Bible, I'll practice this, I'll go do that. I will, I will, I will when I have more time. Here's the problem with time. You don't find it, you have to make it. Anybody else got some I will and wins that are really just crutches kind of keeping you from that next step or is it just me? This is some in-between style living and questions. But I think the next natural step of the if I will wins is this one. Ooh, when I judge the current me against the five-year more mature me. Should we blame job interviewers for this? You know what question I'm talking about? So tell me, where do you see yourself in five years? Right? And I think that there's some good in that question because it's like, I want to project ahead. I want to have some goals. None of these statements in and of themselves are wrong or bad. I think they become wrong for us when they begin to project into a future that harms our present. Here's how I learned this. Around that same time, I was sharing this with someone who at that time in my life was a spiritual director. I mean, like, we would log on. He was in another state. We would Skype, and we would talk, and he would just ask these incisive kind of gut-level questions, and he was trying to poke holes in some of these statements and feelings on the screen here. And finally, he said, look, the problem with those future versions, those future me's, is not only that they don't exist but they almost surely won't exist. The future version of yourself may just be a figment of your imagination. You don't know what will happen. And he said this, and I can't believe I paid him money a little bit to say this because this one wrecked me. He said, Adam, instead, why not concentrate on what God is forming in you right now? We live most of our life feeling like we're in between. And while we're busy looking ahead and pondering the ifs and the wills, the in-between, the place we want to move so quickly through, is exactly what God is using to form us. He's using the circumstances, however difficult or mundane or ordinary or boring, He's using these exact things to shape us and form us into the future you that he desires. Nowhere is this more apparent in Scripture than in the wilderness wanderings of this newly liberated tribe, and they were a tribe called Israel. So will you look with me in Exodus chapter 15? We're just going to look at a couple verses, the first part of a short story. Lord willing, we'll look at the second part next week. It's going to be on the screen. I want to tell you this story. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 15, it's the second book in your Bible there. You may remember that a couple weeks ago we looked at the call of Moses, who is their leader. Even though his resume 
didn't look up to snuff. God spoke to him, called him, appointed him, and God used him. That was in Exodus chapter 3. You'll notice you just turned to Exodus chapter 15. So you need to know that we just leapfrogged that whole let my people go back and forth with Pharaoh. Just go rent Prince of Egypt. You don't rent movies anymore. You do on Amazon. Go get it from the library like I do. You can get that. Stream it. Thank you, Mark. It's 2019. We skipped over all the ten plagues. Just go get the Bible series they did a couple years ago, and you'll get a feel for it. We missed the Passover. That's famous. We even passed through the Exodus, where they passed through the Red Sea. Really, it's called the Reed Sea. So now, we're here in Exodus 15. And I want you to imagine the party to end all parties, the highest of highs. They've just been delivered through. They were enslaved the day before, and now they are free. Their captors who had whipped them and oppressed them had been done away with. And y'all, they're singing, they're partying, they're dancing, and then they check just to make sure it's true. And then we have a prophetess and a whole gaggle of women with their tambourines. And just to be sure, they're singing and shouting and dancing and clapping. Then they put the tambourines away. They pack up their stuff and they set out for the wilderness in the in-between. The in-between was in between their miraculous rescue of Exodus and the promised land that God had talked to them about. Here's the trouble. That highest of high dance party is immediately followed by the lowest of lows as they strike out into the desert. We live our lives, I think, between the initial rescue of God's salvation and deliverance. Yes, Jesus, amen, I believe it, I believe it, I'm loving it. And then we immediately step into the everyday, ordinary life because we live in between the initial rescue and that ultimate rest when the kingdom comes in fullness. You know it's true in your life, not just in Israel's life, because when did you first give your life to Jesus? Do some of you have a date? Maybe you wrote it in an early Bible. Some of you? Yes? No? Some of you have a date? Some of you can probably point to a season where you came to this gradual awareness that like you're in a community like this and you're following the rhythms and you begin to say, yeah, yes, I get it. And you realize that you're following in the way of Jesus and you've crossed over from death to life. Now, when you gave your life to Jesus, did you immediately pass into his presence, just and you're face to face with Jesus? That's the dumbest question I could ever ask because no, you're sitting here in Garland, Texas. You're sitting right here. I know this is a silly question to ask, but I need you to understand why would he leave us here in this in-between? In between this initial rescue, crossing over from death to life, saying, yes, Jesus, I'm yours, I want to follow you. And then this ultimate rest of this life lived even beyond death to be face-to-face with the risen king and to see this kingdom come and recreate and make all things new, why would he leave us in this in-between? Here's why. To form us for missions so that we can go invite other people to the party so that they could 
pass through the initial rescue and live in the in-between with us. Because there's a whole lot of earth that looks a lot less like heaven than it ought. To show us how to live this life of heaven that's invading the earth even now. And to grow us in a relationship of trust that will continue beyond death. Why would he take Israel from enslavement to liberty and into the desert? Maybe because he wants to form them for mission too. Maybe because they need to grow in their relationship of trust too. Maybe they need to learn the rhythms of heaven right here on earth too. Generations of the faithful attest to, I think, two great things that form us in this life. We're going to love one of them. We're going to hate the other one. You ready? Great love and great suffering. I think at the baseline of all spiritualities that really have a substance to them, They all attest to two things that form us and shape us in our human experience. Great love, great suffering. Think about it. What are the most impactful seasons and moments and opportunities and relationships in your life? They either broke you or they gave you life. Those experiences that either wrecked you and tested you or they forged you and formed you through great love. The reason why we need to learn to trust the now and the present in the in-between is because God uses these things to form us and shape us and we just want to run past them and God's going to invite us to not spend sometimes four days or four hours. Like Israel, it might be 40 years. But it's God's great love that leads them even amidst their great suffering. And it's God's great love that's leading and shaping you in your in-between. Do you believe this? We had Amy Kahn stand up and share about the heart-wrenching season of losing five loved ones, her dad, her brother, and others, in a span of about 12 months or so. And the death that just harbored, just this harbinger of darkness over them, this specter that floated over the whole family. And on the other side of it, she wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but she's able to now look back and see how this has formed her and shaped her into a faith and a trust that is earthy and real and tested. Not that she wants to live it again, but she's able to see how it formed her and shaped her through it. Great love and great suffering This is what Israel is up to and up against in the wilderness. So now we're in Exodus 15. The songs have been sung. The dance has been danced. We put the tambourines away. Now we're in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. Make note that that's the Reed Sea, actually. And they went into the desert of Shur. This should be on the screen for you. And for three days, they traveled in the desert without finding any water. Anybody up for that hike? No? There's some intentionality here. I love that Moses didn't put it into the GPS and got lost. It says Moses led them. At what point are they scratching their heads saying, Moses, are you sure about this? He's like, I got it. I know a place. I got it. It's good. Trust me. There's going to be traffic over there. What a shock to go from singing and dancing and into a wilderness space that could not have been more opposite 
from the land flowing with milk and honey. Like, it's not even flowing with water. It's interesting that three days is how long their hike lasted. Because the initial request that Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Hey, Pharaoh, listen, man, we need a Labor Day holiday weekend. We need three days. We need to go to the wilderness. And we need to reconnect with this unseen God, Yahweh. I met him at a burning bush. Long story. I need three days. We need to go do this thing. They requested, we need three days to travel to the wilderness to worship God. The first time we see them making their three-day journey to the wilderness is in the desert without water. How long can a human being last, on average, without water? Try three. Now, if you Google this, it will say, depending on your age, kind of your health, your stamina, and probably not when you're walking in a desert after you've outrun your enemy captors. There's something between the lines in this in-between that glosses over all the shallow graves of their loved ones that they buried. And this is remarkable to me because they still have the songs ringing in their ears and they're plodding step by step, these grueling three days, welcome to your new life. And it's so natural for us to think that this emergency and this dire situation just immediately becomes our new normal. When the worst happens, it causes us to go into this fog, even within three days, where we wonder if we'll ever make it and we'll ever be the same again. Now, in verse 23... They finally come to this place called Mara. Oh, good. They see the water. But what does it say? They could not drink its water because it was bitter. And then the writer says, that is why the place is called Mara. That's when the people say, Moses, I told you. Don't you know what Mara means, dude? It ain't free Slurpees. It's bitter. And whatever this means, it means that they see this water, they see this way out, they think that this is the opportunity worth taking, and then when they really get closer, they realize we can't do this. I love this because it reminds us that sometimes when we're in the in-between, the first opportunity feels like the best opportunity, and we want to do it, we want to jump, we want to take it, we want to do it, and we don't realize that maybe this isn't what we ought to to do. Maybe every step isn't worth taking. Whatever bitter means, we can speculate, but we just know that it wasn't drinkable. It wasn't potable. Is it potable or potable? Okay. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Potable, potable. We got a dinner to get to. Let's just keep moving. You ready? For whatever reason, they couldn't drink it. It was probably too salty. But I love this because at this point, they're like, why are we here? Like, of all the places, Moses, why here? And I think that when you arrive at a place where you say, why here? Why now? Why this? I think that's one of those moments that God is inviting you to look up and say, yeah, this is the time where you've got to really ask, do you trust me? Right? Because it's one thing to trust him when things are going well. It's another thing to trust him in the in-between when you've been three days without water and your life is hanging in the balance. 
So then in verse 24, the people do what we would do, and they grumbled against Moses, saying, well, what are we to drink, Moses? Here we are. And isn't it human nature to point the finger when you're in an in-between season? You got me here. I'm here because of you. I'm here because I followed you and I believed you. I'm here because of you. I'm here because of this. I'm here because of God. And by the way, grumbling barely scratches the surface on what's really going on. By the way, the next two stories, this is the first of three stories, the next ones have grumbling, 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 grumbling all throughout. And this ain't just like murmuring like, man, can you believe this place? Mara, this is gross. I wanted a Dr. Pepper. This is like beyond grumbling and like a minor complaint. This is lodging a formal, heck no, Moses, This is a rebellious descent, like they might kill him. There's mutiny. Why? Because they've buried some loved ones. They're on the verge of death, and their new normal in the in-between is miserable and dire, and it looks nothing like what God promised. And here's the trick. We want to point the fingers at them for pointing the fingers at Moses and grumbling and all this. Tell me you would do anything else different. When your mother, your grandfather, your kids are dying. Here's the trick. When your circumstances look bleak, don't let anyone tell you it's no big deal. Do let someone remind you that it's not the only story happening. Here's a silly illustration. Hold up your hand open hand, about five inches from your eyeballs, okay? See this? Now, look at me in my face, and how many fingers am I holding up? Four. Some of you get it. You are the true spiritual ones. Here's my dumb, silly illustration. You can see sometimes in some ways, but our circumstances like that hand keep us from seeing clearly because this clouds so much of our vision When that thing, that diagnosis, that relationship, that, 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 you know what that is, I'll let you fill in the blank. Whatever that is, when it gets closer and closer and obscures all of your vision, you know what you miss? The lights up here, the beams overhead, the stage here before you, the person standing before you, the person sitting next to you, the songs that we've sung, the screen with the words of life that you see. The problem with our circumstances is when they become all we can see, they become our only reality, we forget to ask, is my circumstance the only reality? This past Monday, I went to see Probably my favorite speaker and writer. His name is Rob Bell. He spoke at a music venue in Deep Ellum, which is weird because he used to do that for free when he pastored a church. And uh, we went to Deep Ellum to hear a guy not do stand-up or music, but to basically preach for an hour and a half. So just know that, looking at your watches. It's not an hour and a half on a Monday in Deep Ellum, but it was wonderful. And he was speaking and he was sharing about joy and how we are to live on the other side of darkness and suffering and these kinds of things. But I think one of the things that really stuck out to me and resonated with me was something toward the end of his talk. And he said, I feel like my job now is to go from city to city, 
just to play a bass note. Here's what he meant by that. Our world is overrun with treble. News reports, tweets, people yelling at each other on social media, advertisers trying to get our attention. We need to be reminded of the deeper notes that people have been singing, writing, and celebrating since time began. These bass notes ground us in something beyond ourselves, and they help us make sense of all that treble by putting it in its proper context. That's not to erase and turn down the treble. That's not to have a friend come and just say, get that circumstance and that hand out of your face. That is to name it and acknowledge it, but to ask the question, is this, is this the only thing happening? Is this, is this the only reality? You see, that was an opportunity not for grumbling, as easy as it is to point fingers, that was an opportunity, maybe their first opportunity, to listen for the bass note playing just underneath. So the question, if I can take just a quick step aside, is this. Man, what are you listening to in the in-between? Because there's no shortage of things on the if column and the when column vying for your attention and ear. If only I had this. If only I could do that. Which is to say, not this and not that. Which misses what God is doing in the in-between present tense right now as much as it sucks. And it sucked for Israel and Moses. Remember they had just been born. They're three days old. They're just learning to walk with God and trust Him. And God is using their circumstance to form them. But what if real trust, oh, and I hate this question, but what if real trust, the kind of earthy trust Amy Kahn spoke of, the kind of getting grounded in the base note trust, what if real trust is only shaped by life in the wilderness? What if Israel couldn't be Israel without the wilderness? What if you couldn't be you, the you that God is forming and shaping, without this week? What if? Maybe we're wondering if this God can do it again, because we saw him do it at the Reed Sea, but can we really count on him today when we're dying of thirst? So Moses, in verse 25, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. I love this. The miracle is, here's a stick. That's what happens. And so Moses throws it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Some way you can read this is, and the water was healed. Moses, if you're playing along at home, is the only one that's listening and speaking to God at this point in the story of Exodus. Moses is the one that cries out to God. Can we make a pact, church, real quick? Can we make a pact to gripe to God as much or more as we gripe to each other. You want to do it? Are we in? Can we cry out and gripe and ask and fuss and fight with God 
as much or more as we gripe and fuss and hopefully not fight now with each other? There is a biblical tradition of arguing with God. Man, and if you read the Old Testament, like I've been jamming in Exodus, this God, they're just trying to get to know him, and we're only getting our first snapshots of him. And the picture is a little bit blurry, like you're pulling out that Polaroid, trying to shake that thing. This God is untamable and wild and unseen, and they're just trying to figure him out. So they're griping and crying out. But you know what? This God is responsive. I love this because God is responsive. Israel learns that he gives them what they need when we need it. Did you know that God is responsive and that he gives us what we need when we need it? And here's some good news. He never runs out of what we need. Our dear friend, sister, partner, Jared's mother-in-law, Carla's mom, Raquel Quinones, taught me and many of you about answered prayer. Several years back, we sent a team to El Paso to build the Ken Kanatabi Memorial Food Pantry right there on their back lot of their house because they had cans and cans and cans and pallets and pallets and pallets of food that was just stored outside simply because there was so much need, so many donations, that they couldn't fit it in the house. So we drove out to El Paso, and we built this shed with Caesar and Raquel. It was a wonderful trip, was it not? It was amazing. And during that week, Jared and a couple others pointed out the rough shape that Caesar's truck was in. And this is a truck that he was crossing the border multiple times a week, sometimes every day, into Juarez. He was feeding hundreds of people at a soup kitchen that he ran, helped organize. Then, on stateside, he would feed 80 families in need groceries throughout the month. He was moving and grooving, moving cans, beans, and all this food. So we had a nice place to store it, but the need that Jared and some others noticed while they were there is, can they actually get it? So you guys remember what we did, right? So my family had this 98 extended cab Chevy truck that probably would have been used to help Lynette and Jeremiah move today, but it's living now in El Paso, and they call it Samson. Carla sent pictures. We've shown him a couple times. That thing is still moving and grooving and hauling food here, there, and everywhere, last I checked. Now, that's amazing. You guys rock. Let me tell you the other part of the story you may have forgotten. Now, the truck showed up and surprised them. They were flabbergasted, they were floored, they were pumped. But here's the best part. Raquel sent us a picture of her prayer journal. And it's page after page after page of request, request, request. Cry out, cry out, cry out. Gripe, gripe, you name it. Lots of requests written down. And lots of answers circled. She would go back through that prayer journal and remember that she asked for this and she needed this. And when she saw it in real time, in the in-between, she circles it. Now, there was a lot of circles in those journals, but the newest circle was from one of her newest requests. Just within weeks of us coming and going, She had prayed that God would give 
Caesar a reliable truck to go here and there. And it was circled. This is why we're taught, I think, to pray for daily bread. To recognize the extraordinary in the ordinary. To recognize that what we have, we received. As much as you think you went down there to Aldi and you bought it with your hard-earned money, know that it's a gift. And also know that there are others that are in need of daily bread and he might even ask you to be an answer to your own prayer. Moses still had to look and see the stick and throw it in the water. And I think it's in those moments where we see how responsive God is, how even in the ordinary, he's doing the extraordinary. And I'm reminded even this week from another pastor of a church about our size and about our age, where he looks around and sometimes he says, man, I thought things would be a lot different by now. Boy, my if when we planted three years ago was that when and then, by this time, man, we'd be moving and grooving and we'd be some mini mega church because that's what success looks like, right? Not for everybody. What we're called to is faithfulness. And so what he said was, three years on, I look around and I say, you know what? The stick that God points out to him is this. I have enough. We have enough. We are enough for the mission that God has given to us to flourish within our place in our time to bear the beams of love that he's asked us to bear. When you start to pray and ask, you see that even in the ordinary, you have enough in what you need, even in the in-between. It's powerful that when he throws the water, the stick in the water, a lot of scholars say, you know what, they probably knew some ancient wisdom that this was a stick that would turn brackish water sweet. It would kind of pull the things and it would filter it. It was like an ancient Brita. And that may be true. That truthfully may be true. But here's the deal. The person writing this story for us, thousands of years later, wants us to know how God was in this, in the in-between, when they needed it, responsive, to give them what they need when they needed it, even if it's as ordinary as a stick or a Chevy. God is in this. God is with you if you listen to the bass notes and notice those God-given sticks. It's powerful that just a few chapters before, if you remember the plagues, you might remember that the Nile was undrinkable. It was an anti-creation to kind of get Pharaoh's attention. And now, three days on, in the in-between, new creation is breaking in. We don't have that much time, but I want to draw your attention to one of several passages in Isaiah that talks about what it looks like when God's kingdom begins to break in, even in the in-between. Even in between initial salvation and ultimate rest. And it looks like this in Isaiah chapter 41. The poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys, I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. As we close, I want to invite you to 
revise your if-then statements. If I don't get what I want, if I don't get exactly what I ask for, if I don't become who I want to become, then God will be enough and I believe that streams will come in the desert and I believe that the parched ground and my parched tongue will be filled with enough for the next step. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your presence within us, among us, and how you have chosen to work with us and through us. Even when we grumble, even when we gripe, even when we blame and point the fingers, even when we participate in the noise of the treble that is going around in the culture around us, thank you for drawing us out and into this place, though it may feel like the in-between, who this church was and who this church ought to be, would we learn to trust you because you are not done with us. You are forming us and moving among us. So may you hear our requests and our prayers and may you give us many, many more reasons to draw circles around the moments you've been faithful each and every step through Christ Jesus our Lord who walks with us. Amen. Go out from here as workers in God's upside-down kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, where needs are met in miraculous ways and there is grace enough for all. And may the blessing of God, the love of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit surround you and sustain you in the coming days. Amen. Go in peace.